Podcast One. everyone, thank you so much for subscribing to Listenable, to our little podcast about disability, where not only do we have guests on Listenable, but we've started to have little discussions around the top of episodes around some topics that are in the disability community. Yeah, people saying that they wanted to hear a bit more from us, which is pretty cool. Angus, you're now an authority on this, do you know that? Am I? Well, you've got lived experience because you're learning and, and you oh. hang out with me and things like that. Very cool. A pretty bad authority, but you still kind of count. <laughs> I've got some sort of authority. Yeah, and a lot of, and you know, when things pop up in, in our world or in the news or mm. whatever, we've... So we're going to touch on it and talk about it. Well, this is actually a message that was sent to us via Listenable podcast on Instagram. Shelby sent us a message and she said, hey, Listenable, love listening to your podcast, but I have a hot take that people may disagree with, but I feel it's an essential conversation to have. Obesity can be a disability. As an obese person myself, there are many challenges and disadvantages that people who are obese face every day. We often have to request chairs without arms in order to feel comfortable and to be able to fit. Getting in lifts can be necessary due to joints failing and can often lead to awkward looks and shame if the weight alarm in the lift goes off. Obesity is a complex disease with many multifaceted causes, including hormonal, physical and emotional, making it notoriously difficult to treat. I myself weighed at 196 kilos at my highest and struggled to perform everyday tasks such as washing my body. My obesity has existed since I was a child and stems from a lot of emotional issues, genetics and hormones. I realized I was dying in my body and not living my life. She's since had gastric bypass surgery at the start of the year and has lost 55 kilograms. Congrats. And she would like to come on and talk about she believes obesity is a disability. And Shelby, good morning. Good morning to you both. Hey, Shelby, thanks so much for your email. Uh, well, and congrats on and losing congrats. 55 kilograms. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. It's actually now 58 kilograms. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I like. Awesome. Um, yeah. So let's cut straight to the chase. So why do you think directly that um, obesity should be classified as a disability? Uh, well, it is very, very complex. And at my highest weight, I actually didn't consider myself disabled at all. And reflecting since I've lost some of the weight, I'm like, ooh, I actually was really struggling to perform those everyday tasks, like washing myself, like going to the toilet. And these are normal things that able-bodied people can do without a thought. And, you know, having lost the weight, I'm like, oh my gosh, I was really struggling to do things. I couldn't clean the house. I couldn't cook. I started to really not be able to cook because I just was so tired from having to, you know, pull that weight all around. I will ask you this, and this is asking, not judging. Um, what would you say to someone like me who is disabled permanently and can't change my situation compared to, say, someone like you who now has lost weight and can start doing these activities? Like, I can't do anything to start walking. No, absolutely. And that's why I I actually thought a long time about sending the email because I thought, oh, actually, I, I, I consider myself able-bodied right now. So I, I don't really fit in the disability spectrum right now but a lot of people are permanently in this cycle of um, obesity so although I have lost weight that doesn't mean that it will stay off. Could you understand that some people might who are disabled might find it maybe even offensive that you believe that you can go in and out of disability in your mind because you lose or gain weight let's say for example you say uh, you were disabled because you couldn't wash yourself. What about somebody like a previous guest, Nat Wade, who has to have carers because she will never be able to wash herself completely? Uh, yet, if you lose some weight, you then are able to. I don't know. Yeah. I think people might struggle with the idea that you believe 
that you can go in and out of disability. Like you said, you're now believing you're able-bodied, but 50 kilos ago you weren't. Yeah, and and that's why it's it, it was such a you know struggle for me to send the email because I don't want to take any voices away from the disability community. Um, I, I just wanted to have a, a, a talk about it. So can I ask a question then, Shelby? At your highest weight, 196 kilo, when you believe that you were you know the most disabled, uh, do you yep. believe that you should have been able to get some benefits from the NDIS? Um, that's a tricky one. Uh, I think uh, no, but um, that being said, there are people who are more obese than, than I am that probably could do with some assistance. Um, like I was able to walk. There are some obese mm. people who aren't who are bed bound. What so, about disabled parks? Do you think that would have been handy? Would have you used that? Uh, it would have been handy, but I, I, I ethically and morally did not feel okay, okay. applying for one. But everybody's a little bit different. But I, I think I am also quite young, um, 35. I consider myself quite young anyway. Yeah, you are. Yeah, or maybe I'm sure. young in my brain. No, you, you are know? for sure. You're definitely young. <laughs> but if you have been obese for, say, 60 years, your joints are, are really unable to, you know, have the same sort of flexibility and strength that mine do as a younger person. So... I think it would be assessment on an individual basis, I think, in terms of fairness. Because, yeah, I, I did not feel comfortable applying for a, a disability permit. But, yeah, it would have made things a lot easier having to have a disability permit to be able to walk to and from the car because you know, walking was, was a struggle. Shelby, we do have to say thank you so much for your hey, email and for take. listening to Listen Able and our weekend show. We really do appreciate it. And I think this is going to spark interesting discussion. And that's what it's all about, Shelby. So for being brave enough to come talk about it, we really appreciate it because, it, as you said, sparked an interesting thought in us and hopefully other people as well. Yeah, that was the idea, just to talk about it. A big thank you once again to Shelby for coming on the podcast and, and being able to speak what she believes to be her truth. I don't necessarily think I agree with it, um, that's my opinion, but you know, everyone's entitled to this. Uh, I'm with you, obviously. Uh, but I was, uh, some she, good points. yeah, the way she put it across, she was really well spoken and brave to come on, to be honest, because yeah. uh, we could have ripped her to shreds. I'm sure some people might want to, but Hey, fair enough. And, and good on her for getting fit. And that, as she said, she's, um, she's changing her life and getting fit on so the right track, credit. which is great. And uh, now let's meet our next guest and let them introduce themselves and, and just a little takeaway. We've already recorded this episode. We know who's coming up. Uh, this is one of the great history lessons on disability, as Dylan and I, both of our minds and uh, were blown as we just had some facts dropped on us about what it was like to be a person with a disability, you know, less than 100 years ago. Yeah, you know, I think I know a lot about it, but even my jaw was on the floor a few times, so make sure you stick around. Yeah, hi, I'm Simon Darcy. I've been uh, around the traps for, wa- uh, for a while in the... Uh disability and diversity space. Um, my position is I'm a professor at the UTS Business School in Management, which sounds really heavy, but it's, a, you know, it's an extension of the different work and also uh, different recreation I like to get involved in too, and that's um, making sure all people can have an equal opportunity to fill their potential. Now, what is your disability, Simon? I'm a um, C4, C5 spinal cord injury. Uh, I had a surfing accident back in uh, 83, which is a long time ago. Can you take us back to that day before we get into, you know, what your career has been in your advocacy space? Yeah, and again, it's one of these ones, um, and I'm sure 
Dylan, um, uh, somebody who uh, I, I think Dylan, I'm correct in uh, saying that you had a you were born with your disability. Correct, mate. Um, yeah, I was born with a tumor uh, wrapped around my so spinal you, cord. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know how many stories you've made up when people ask you, you know, what happened. But in my case, uh, in my case, it was a you know, normal day. I was sort of at uni uh, at the time, actually starting to do a secondary degree in uh, uh, PE science and maths, and uh, we had a week off leading leading up to doing our uh, prac teaching stints. Uh, and I thought I'd go down to you know the surf club where I was. Uh, a member and um, it was just one of those things big after a big surf found a rock under the water and um, anyone that's been in a position of you mm. know, having a spinal cord injury where you go direct to pa uh, paralysis I was face down and uh, luckily um, you know I was a uh, you know sort of on an elite pathway uh, uh, athlete wise had enough breath to keep me going for a while until I was very lucky somebody, not only uh, two people, uh, in fact, saw me in the water. Um, one knew uh, what to do with this possible spinal injury. They were a professional lifeguard by uh, trade, but it had actually broken their neck only uh, uh, about 12 months before, but walked out mm -hmm. of it. Flipped me over and uh, luckily I hadn't drowned or anything. So in a split second, I went from, you know, 100% to pretty much zero for uh, the next six months in a spinal unit back in the day and uh, my first helicopter flight, which uh, wasn't as cool as I was <laughs> expecting it to be. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, uh, the, the, long, the long path back for somebody with a high-level spinal cord injury. There's obviously a lot more knowledge around disability and accidents, and I think everybody in some way would kind of know what to do with a spinal cord injury these days. Back then... Was it common knowledge? Was that a real rarity that that guy knew what to do? Um, it, it, in a in you know in a surf life saving sense, you get trained for all sorts of um, you know emergencies uh, in the in the surf, obviously, and um, water based injuries are still pretty high up there. I mean, you you know cars, uh, motor vehicle accidents, and then you know um, the average age of uh, somebody with a spinal cord injury is between 16 and uh, 25 or 26 or so, predominantly male. I think it's 80% male, 20% female. Is it? Um, and I've heard you say every every now and then that, you know, you do some pretty stupid things and mm. then afterwards think about uh, how dangerous they were. <laughs> well, that that's pretty normal for, you know, that A-type male of, uh, of those age groups. But, yeah, the, the care thing's really changed over the years. So... Um, I, from what I understand, I attended uh, the International Spinal Cord Injuries um, uh, Medical uh, Conference a few years ago in Sydney. Um, they're getting a lot better recovery from people because of the protocols they're using and some uh, new treatments. So, look, that's terrific. But, you know, generally spinal cord injury is not a good lifestyle choice. Yeah. Mm. Uh, before we get into... Your recovery and your life afterwards, I do have to ask because you're an expert in disability and inclusion now, which I love, and you advocate very hard. But when you were an 18-year-old shaka surfer up on your feet, what did you know about disability? Did you have any idea about anything? Look, of course, I, I suppose because of rugby circles, you're aware of spinal cord injury. I mean, they're 
um, you know, it was only a few years after my injury they really started to change scrum laws. But I think at that stage, uh, one season in New Zealand, there was like 15 quadriplegics in a year. Really? Uh, something crazy like Jesus. that. So, so the rugby community were really aware of needing to reduce those injuries. And actually only uh, two years ago, there was a spate of four injuries just up in Queensland uh, uh, early on in, um, in a season. So, you know, I, I had some awareness of disability because I was you know, in the middle of a uh, PE education degree. You know, we, we'd done some study on disability staff. I'd uh, been involved in uh, sessions at what was then the Cumberland College for, educa- uh, for education where they specialised in um, all sorts of uh, programs that got uh, people with disability involved in sport as well. And generally, uh, I was as ignorant as everybody else. Those couple of minutes or a minute or however long it was probably felt like an eternity with your face down in the water. Do you remember those minutes of being face down? And, and... Oh, uh, every second. Um, yeah. I was conscious of just trying to you know, hold my breath as long as I could. Um, and, you know, I knew the consequences of not, you know, if, if I did drown and then the possibilities of acquired brain injury coming out of uh, lack of oxygen going to the brain. So, yeah, it's one of those things. But I'd always been a, I still am a very calm person that doesn't get panicked that often. And panic's the thing that really kills people in water. I think another big learning as well, I was shocked when I started playing sport, how many people were from an accident from diving in water. It's actually a bigger number than you think. Do you reckon there is enough, I guess, education pieces around that, for, especially for young young kids in school? Well, look, I, I, th- I think there's, you know, so many different situations where you take the beach, the, the forces of the ocean are so incredibly powerful that just from one day to another, the banks can change, what was there yesterday wasn't, rocks are uncovered, and similarly, um, you know, there's a lot of injuries that are actually not beach injuries, but they're uh, inland in rivers mm-hmm. and uh, waterholes and other things mm. where you know, it all looks cool. But, you know, unless you really know what's under the water each time. Um, and, you know, there was somebody like me that was, you know, actually trained at that beach and people say it's a one in a million. But, you know, it happened and uh, it happened and does happen on a regular basis. So, you know, as I said, I don't have the stats at hand, but motor accidents are still a major mm. cause and water injuries are, um, you know, they're up there as well. Something needs to change in your life or you need to have a moment where you understand the repercussions of actions. Um, for me, you know, I played um, AFL up in uh, Caloundra on the Sunshine Coast and we were a very tight team. We won a premiership together. About four years later, about so maybe like five, six years ago, I heard about the tragic passing of one of my teammates and uh, he had dived into a water hole in Queensland, uh, one that he dived into many times, but things had changed in the water and he passed away. Yeah, and uh, up until that point, I was the guy who jumped off things. Yeah. I, there's a place down where I grew up, Bird Rock in, in Janjuk, and, and there's a little, you know, stone that's out of the water and it's got a little water hole and used to jump off it all the time in summer. And now I look at kids doing that and I'm like, jeez. Don't do it. You know, because yeah. the tides change, things change. Thanks for sharing that. So when you had your accident, I mean, you're a real positive guy now and you've used your disability for good. 
Were you always like that from the get-go or did you go through a tough time straight off in rehab? Uh, uh, yeah, of course I went through a tough time. You, you know, 19, everything's in front of you, everything's possible. You're 10 foot tall, you're bulletproof. Um, and then you're not. And so, you know, I, I, I talk in an academic sense about, you know, really living in two worlds where, you know, I come from this, you know, reasonably um, you know, privileged, able-bodied background. Well, you, you do. You take a lot of, lot of things for granted. And even though you're the same person, you are different. And you are different because, you know, almost everything you've got to do, and going back then it was, you know, so much worse than it is now with just basic access re- requirements without getting into, uh, you know, ICT tech and, and, and all that space. But, you know, I, I not long, uh, actually, I think it was just out of hospital, one of the um, one of the girls I used to go and see, you know, lots of bands with said, oh, uh, and, you know, this is cringeable uh, now. Uh, went and saw Style Council at the Hort Pavilion, <laughs> uh, you know, 1984 and 1985. And this is the last that's sort of bit on the short side, and I'm, you know, six three-ish. And uh, so a lot of the times when we used to see bands, she'd end up on my shoulders. And, mm-hmm. um, and so everything was cruising along, and we had good seats up the front. The security were doing the right thing. And then Rob Weller come, you know, gets on the mic and says, I want everybody up the front dancing. And, uh, you know, that was the last thing I saw of the show. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, the, the first of many, inverted commas, you know, letters of complaint that I wrote to venues. And uh, actually, if you go to Horton Pavilion, you can still see sort of the outcome of uh, that first early complaint where there's a number of, you know, it's not perfect access, but they have a number of raised, platforms for um, wheelies or people that aren't as good on their feet uh, where at least, uh, you know, they'll have, you know, you've got sight lines. Um, and, yeah, it was that it was that sort of stuff that then drove mm. me uh, after doing an undergraduate degree to go into sort of the environmental planning area. Um, and that's been a really good foundation for not just raising awareness, but, you know, making sure the technicalities that are, local, uh, regional, national, amplify rather than, as you'll understand, Dylan, dealing with things on a case-by-case level, which is just infuriating because literally the same form of discrimination can happen next door the next day uh, after addressing it in another place. And Mm. so, um, you know, I've gone from being a really, uh, you know, angry crip, you Mm. know, um, Putting uh, putting a mark down the side of cars, illegally parked in wheelie wheelchair Good spaces, <laughs> to being uh, far more strategic and uh, looking at the long game of uh, making sure that the improvements are, stri- are strategic, engaged, and also um, that there's a dialogue with those who oppose. And and there's some terrible stuff goes on, you know. For example, in the uh, review of the access to premises standards, where part of the hospitality and hotel community were trying to remove um, the proportion of accessible rooms, uh, which, you know, they say uh, the current rooms aren't used to the occupancy that's required, but they don't understand the complexity of it. Why would I stay in any, in a, one of their rooms that is designated as, you know, a, a disabled room or an accessible room, if that room is actually a crap room? Yeah, exactly. 
no view and lousy access. You get downgraded. So when I go as a motivational speaker, the client pays for it and they pay for a better room. But then I get there and I get downgraded. Oh, I've only got all the desired rooms are actually on the bottom floor with no windows. And I was like, well, I'll take you. Here's a view of an aircraft. Can I have the good room? And they're like, yeah, but it's not accessible. So you get the crap on. You're like, well, that sucks. Mm. I also probably stuffed up that for you, Simon, with the venues, um, with the elevated platforms at the Horton, because I crowd surfed in my wheelchair <laughs> and then probably got booted out as well. Because I, could, <laughs> I couldn't see shit either, mate. I'm with you. But that, that, that's an interesting one with the rooms. Yeah, I'm the same where, uh, you know, I, but I travel with an attendant as well. So the attendant always ends up with a better room than I do. Man, my brother gets a good room sometimes when we go somewhere and I'm in a crap pot. I go, that's not cool. Yeah, you get to visit their room to see what the view's exactly like. Exactly like, yes. Have the other half left. So, so somewhere like Sydney Harbour, and it's got a lot better now, but back in you know, the late 90s when we first did some auditing of rooms, there was only four accessible rooms in Sydney that had a view of the, in, in the Sydney CBD that had a view of the harbour. It's got a lot better now. So, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll give them a plug because, you know, you want to give the good ones a plug. The new Sofitel down at Darling Harbour, it's got an accessible room on every floor nice. um, and it's got, you know, great views, great room, and they've done a really good job. But try and find it on their website, you know. Yeah, true. Uh, so uh, even the places that have got it, and I look, I've, I did my first report in that space back in 95 for um, – Tourism New South Wales and work with a really good uh, mate of mine who uh, put out the first guide to uh, accessible travel in uh, in the country, a guy called Bruce Cameron, a uh, book called Easy Access Australia, and it's still worth looking at these days because what he did, it's not about the hotels, it's about the experiences that you can have. So, um, you know, whether you're somebody with a mobility disability or somebody who's blind or vision impaired or deaf or hearing impaired, when you go to a destination, you want to know what the cool things are that you can do there. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to know how good the hotel is. Nobody's going to stay in a hotel unless it's an amazing hotel. So um, working with destination marketing authorities who have got big budgets, and, you know, I always say follow the money with this stuff. If, they're, if they can't tell you, uh, you know, what the budget is for marketing for you know, accessible tourism, you know, they're doing sweet FA. Yeah. yeah. Um, and everyone who's listening to this podcast, maybe for the first time, to hear Simon's story, that we did an episode with a lady named Julie Jones, uh, who has a blog called Travel Without Limits, and she covers a lot of the accessibility places that she's seen with her son, who's high-level care in a wheelchair. Um, for you, Simon, can we talk about the difference in generational disability that mm, you've witnessed? Good one. 80s, 90s, noughties, now in 2020 and beyond. Um, you've kind of been able to witness the rise of technology, uh, can you take us through some of the biggest moments in your life where you've seen some of these implemented? Reason being, Simon, because I always say in the media, I'm very lucky to be born when I am because I think of stories of the past, language, accessibility, but I don't know. You know what I mean? We, I, I haven't really spoken to anybody from your generation around it. You, you wake up one day and you look in the mirror and you go, how'd that happen? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to paint you as old as well. <laughs> when I said 80s, 90s, 90s, I'm like, okay, I'm really kind of giving Simon's age yeah. away oh, here. Oh, funny. Uh, and similarly, I pay homage to, um, you know, the extraordinary group of advocates. Uh, you know, for example, in the, um, in the 1970s, uh, many people don't understand that the reason the, uh, in New South Wales was the first place to introduce the taxi subsidy scheme for wheelchair users and introduce, you know, wheelchair accessible taxis, et cetera, is because a whole bunch of 
bloody aggro wheelies uh, chain themselves to the front of the Eastern Suburbs Railway station. I know it is. They were putting in a new lot of railway stations that weren't accessible at all. Um, and it was embarrassing for the government. Mm-hmm. So, that. you know, people um, uh, people like, you know, Joan Hume and uh, John Moxon and Kevin Byrne now, people like that need a tremendous homage paid for direct action advocacy uh, politics mm-hmm. with organisations like, you know, Paraquad and Blind Citizens and uh, Spinal Cord Injuries Australia and other groups like Shush for the deaf, etc. that, you know, you had to get aggro and you had to get organised. And, you know, organisations that came into being like Physical Disability Council, which was, you know, and I'll be colloquial here, you know, a bunch of Crips that set up an organisation that was uh, all, the, the board was all people with disability with one position left for a, a person that's say um, a, a parent of a child with a disability because you know you had to make a noise otherwise you were overlooked other than omitted um, and then they'd say oh you know that's bad luck because if we have to do a refurb on it that's the terrible cost of disability well it's not if you design uh, on yeah. you know universal principles from the same it's a uh, you know about a 0.5% difference on top and places that like Westfield shopping centers do it beautifully, but they don't do it. Well, they, they may do it beautifully partly for disability, but they're doing it for bloody shopping trolleys. Yeah. You know? Can I, can I ask something about that? And it's, I just want your opinion in order to get heard disability, people with disability, especially previously pre-social media that, as you said, had to get loud and aggro. Do you think that sometimes has had a negative effect on the community because people able-bodied people go, oh, God, all disabled people do is yell and complain. So they're going to put well, it in the no, no, okay. You're right. Just being noisy doesn't help, mm. but you need to be noisy sometimes. So evidence-based research. So I'm a university person. Uh, I'm a researcher. I've done a you know, few hundred papers and projects where we provide the evidence mm-hmm. and we provide the evidence through, uh, you know, getting the collective voice rather than just hearing individuals. You can't go to Treasury and say, we want X done if you don't have the evidence. Mm-hmm. And the evidence requires research. And a lot of the time, disability bodies are well behind the eight ball with things like the building codes, um, simply because the big end of town has a lot of money to throw against us. Yep. Um, and so, um, you know, we need to be able to assemble that evidence. Uh, We need mechanisms to do it. And we're very lucky in a country like Australia where, you know, 1992 Disability Discrimination Act um, came into play. I sent you guys a small article that's got a picture of me receiving my master's degree. Yes, Actually, Michael, yeah, Michael Kirby giving that to me. But on that day, I received my uh, I received my degree not on the stage. I received my degree on the floor of the um, uh, of the floor of the uh, hall that we were in at Macquarie University, because the stage wasn't accessible. Can I add to that? What year was that that happened to that, you? That was that was 1992. Well, so that's what happened to me. had only just come in. 2016. Got my uni degree. It was a good university. I liked the Melbourne University. Guess what happened to me? 
They had to walk so off stage they, and give it to me. That's 20 odd years later, still going on. Great, Graham Innes, uh, only a few years ago at uh, Sydney University, uh, where he was asked to go and talk about something. Uh, you know, he used his uh, position to not take the stage because the stage wasn't accessible for all. Oh, um, cool. And, you know, the legislation doesn't require retrofitting, but you would expect that a university, and I must say my own university, UTS, it took us, you know, a good 10 years to get the stage done. And that wasn't because there weren't good people inside. There mm-hmm. was a person that was uh, in a reasonably senior position that didn't think it was aesthetically pleasing. Ooh. You know, can you believe that? Yeah, and now everybody, uh, and please, next time you're up in Sydney, come and I'll show you an amazing uh, set up for um, staging within a, uh, w- within a system that nobody even notices. It's a real signifier of whether you're welcome. Yep. And that, you know, and the same thing with captioning or with tactile ground service indicators or with audible signals on lifts. Yeah. You know, you want to do things to, ma- uh, to make people uh, as independent as possible. And, you know, my big kick at the moment is around aspects of um, employment because there is no doubt that more of us live in poverty. We've got such lo- so, so much lower employment rates, uh, even though uh, we've got access to um, education and many of us have got good levels of education, but still can't get, you know, inverted commas, the literal foot in the door mm. uh, to get that first opportunity. And you asked me before about, you know, not having a disability than having it. From the time I was 14 to 19, I would have done 20 different sorts of jobs. Now, yeah. not full time, but I had all these experiences. You know, I, I, I worked as a worked as a labourer, worked in supermarkets, worked in clubs, and you've got to feel for the sorts of work you like. With people with disability, we don't get those opportunities to try out heaps of stuff. Um, And the whole employment space, and I know you've been involved in some aspects of self-employment. I've I've just finished a major project on uh, entrepreneurship, and that space is very important for people with disability because it ends up being, you know, they get so jack of not getting career development, not being respected for their abilities. They go, bugger it, I'll go and do that for myself. And they do so at rates that are 40% higher than the non-disabled population. Mm-hmm. Even though self-employment is risky, mm-hmm. and when I mean risky, it's all on you. Um, and a lot of the self-employment entrepreneurial programs, the mainstream ones, don't even mention access. Mm-hmm. So you've got a double paradox. We're not employed enough, but when we want to be self-employed, the programs that give us the education for self-employment, setting up your own business, uninclusive either. Yeah. I think I might go self-employment for this podcast, actually. <laughs> just cutting us out. What do you reckon, Simon? Very funny. Just quickly, just to interrupt, and I'm sure people are thinking the same thing that I am. I can look back on every episode that we've done on Listenable, and I always take a learning from at least uh, at least one or two learnings from each episode. I reckon I've got six already. Yeah, you're this, switched Simon. on, guys, Simon. It's great to go through this. This historical aspect hasn't been touched on our podcast so far. And it's even great to watch Dylan's reaction as well to hearing some of these stories. The train story about those people in the wheelchair, we had no, both yeah. had no idea. These are amazing. So thank you so much for um, passing on your wisdom. And one thing, it might be hard to answer, and you, and you might not have an answer for it, but I wonder if you could think, what do you wish you had 
that is currently available back in 1983. So let's just say technology all existed. Yeah, or the most, the thing you would like the most. Yeah, like you look at the current technologies of what exist. If you could go back to 1983, what do you, one thing do you wish you had accessibility to? And then the other side of that is looking at this generation, the latest generation, maybe more technologically savvy social media generation. Uh, what are you glad that you don't? Well, well look, I'll, I'll do I'll do a personal one, then I'll do a collective one. Sure. For, yeah. Definitely from a personal perspective, speech recognition um, computing. Yeah. So uh, just having speech recognition, and even the iPhone uh, is driven by um, Dragon technology, Dragon Naturally Speaking technology. Um, when I needed to do a lot of text work, as you know, not surprising, um, you know, once you're in a university system, you're driven by uh, everybody sort of publish or perish and getting work done. I'm I can be more productive than the uh, average academic on words per day with my speech rec system. So speech recognition, you know, I I don't have fine motor control. Um, I don't have full use of my arms, uh, but with uh, you know, the system I've got sitting here in the office, uh, I can be as productive as the next person intellectually. I've got to work hard because I'm, I don't regard myself as a particularly brilliant people. I've met many brilliant people in the university system and I you know, just admire their uh, intellects. But yeah, that, that speech where I can be able to get it out there. Mm-hmm. And, of, and of course, Similar things for people who are blind, like, you know, JAWS screen readers that read out what's uh, on the net uh, if the uh, if the web pages are constructed in a particular way. Alt text, everybody. Uh, we love yep. that. Yep. Uh, and, you know, obviously uh, we're, we're seeing audio description now more on TV uh, and also captioning for uh, people who are deaf or hearing impaired. So that, that tech definitely... And what I would say is, while everybody wants to make uh, Crips walk again, if you ask people with spinal cord injury what the priorities would be, I think it goes something like bladder, bowel, sexual function, yeah. and manipulation. Um, and then, yeah, it'd be nice if we could walk. <laughs> um, because it's that other stuff that nobody wants to talk about that can really be a downer um, for being in control of your life mm-hmm. uh, and being independent in a lot of other ways. And also, when people first have an accident, a lot of them pay 75 grand a year to go to America, to go to a walking camp, and they get back every after year and they go, that was a waste of money. I wish I'd just used that money bendering around America, whatever it is. Mm. You know what I mean? I've heard, I don't know how many stories of hope I've heard over the years, but you can't put your life on hold. Correct. Uh, you got to start living your life. And if the cure stuff comes along and there's a program at my university, there's a program at Griffith U- University that look, you know, very interesting and promising. If it comes, it comes, but don't put your life on hold. Mm. There's still so much cool stuff to do when you get out and about in the community. And I've mentioned, you know, employment a few times now. Um, you know, I wouldn't have, met my wife if I uh, wasn't employed um, I you know I wouldn't have had as many good friends if I wasn't out and about more often and they take small steps after a traumatic injury um, and the wider your networks are the more opportunities you're going to get sure. and you know Dylan through sports showing that but 
I knew as somebody uh, six foot three and I, I was only ever going to be a point fiver in uh, murder ball back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, my, uh, I would have to put my efforts um, into other areas to be you know, excellent at what I do. And that opened up all sorts of things. Yeah, get busy living. Exactly right. I also said to my friend who dropped 75 grand at one of those places to try and learn how to walk, do you know how much fun we can have with 75 grand? I was like, we can still have a lot of fun in a wheelchair together. Straight straight to Vegas. Straight to Vegas. (laughs) You you and me, Professor, let's go get loose together. No, Vegas is incredibly accessible. It is Vegas. It's an amazing spot. Yeah, yeah. The tables, they're all pretty accessible and the extra entertainment. As well. Are you talking about strippers? No, well, I mean, if you need to get a lap dance, you've always got a chair, haven't oh, you? Gosh. Oh, come on. Now, Simon. You saw his face laughing. He's <laughs> loving it. Yes. Uh, Simon, we do a thing called the Bowl of Uncomfortable. This is where uh, people send us questions, knowing that you're going to be yeah, on the yeah, podcast. Yeah. What's been your hardest moment of your life with a disability in your 35 plus years in a chair? Well, apart from those, yeah, apart from those first few months, uh, in those first few months, uh, you know, after getting into a manual chair, being able to sort of push around, you know, having a meeting with a doctor where it was pretty obvious after uh, nine months I wasn't going to be getting too much more physical improvement. So that was a real earth shatterer at the time because, you you know, the, the, the terrible community attitude, and you hear it all the time with traumatic injury, if you just try and, you know, you just put all your will into it, uh, you'll be able to overcome it. Well, I'm sorry, that's just bullshit. And that really makes a lot of us feel really bad. You know, there are some things that physiologically, uh, medically, you know, they can't cure or overcome. Otherwise, everybody would live forever. Yeah, people say so, that to me that, as well, Simon. They go, have yep. you ever tried walking? I was like, no, I just sat at home lying in bed just because I couldn't right, be bothered. That's right. So, that was one. And then two years, um, 2018, I had my first really bad year medically. Uh, nothing to do with spinal cord injury, um, something that could happen to uh, anyone. And, you know, over a, over a period, oh, one, one part then uh, also spinal. But, you know, over a period of year, I've, I spent, you know, three months in hospital and I thought it was all spiraling out of control. And it just gets you thinking about what's, you know, what what are the important things of life, and uh, you know, making time for family, friends, appreciating the things you've got, and um, you know, really planning to do some really cool stuff when you got out. And that's also really important for all people to say, set yourself some goals and tick off what you can with those goals. And we all don't you know we're, we're all not successful everything we do um and then just pick yourself up and have a crack at something else because oh. i'm I, I suppose i'm a you know I'm, i suppose i'm a cross between an atheist and an agnostic mm. um Me i haven't too. seen too many bright lights i've seen a lot of dark tunnels in the few times <laughs> i've flatlined um and you've got to enjoy yourself while you can mate that's a beautiful sentiment before we let you go as well broad question which we'll try and Narrow down into a simple answer. You're an expert in your field. You're a king of inclusion and diversity. In five years, what do you want to see for the disabled community? The disabled community has to talk more than non-disabled community. And what I really want to see is a lot, um, a, you know, real change in 
attitude uh, coming from our leaders uh, in other areas of the community. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to see people understanding that most people with disabilities want a fair go. And if they take whatever baggage they've got and put it away somewhere, and if somebody with a disability wanders into their office, see it as an opportunity, not as an awkward situation to get out of, um, and engage. And what they'll find is uh, that, you know, people are people. Now, we're starting to see that with some really cool documentaries um, that are breaking things on TV. I, I think there's some problems with um, some of those around the, you know, um, a little bit like, you know, Paralympians, Dylan, are held up as super crips a lot of the time. Agreed. But they're not super crips. No. They're just like everybody else when they go back into community. Correct. So sometimes those shows really show the, you know, the best of the best in uh, whatever the area is. And you've seen that with some of the autism programs around employment or around love. I mean, it's all very nice. But for people to treat others like they'd see themselves treated, and I know it's a a cliche, but disability is going to touch everybody's life. There's an extraordinary correlation between rates of disability and as people get older. Um, So if for nothing else, uh, look at disability in a different way, do as much as you can to be inclusive in whatever area it is that you're engaged with disability, because it's likely that you're going to get some assistance from that as you get older or some of your family members will be in those positions as well. So help yourself and help everybody else. I love that. Yeah. Because you never know when your mom or your dad's going to get MND, something's going to happen. It affects everybody in some, or your kid or whatever it is. Uh, Professor Simon Darcy, thank you so much for coming on. A big thank you to Renee once again for nominating you. Um, It's been not an eye-opener, it's been a, an awakening and it's also been a great learning over the last hour. So thank you so much for your time. Also, if you want to find out some more about uh, Professor's articles and things like that, I was on your Twitter before, there's a there's a few links there where people can read up about some of the stuff that you research and study. I'm going to be stealing some of your stats. Is that all right, brother? As long as you acknowledge Yeah, bloody hope I will. <laughs> yeah, I won't claim it was my own. Don't worry about that. We got heaps of that stuff and so thanks a lot, Dylan Angus. took a lot out of that deal because it's one thing to live have your own learned experience as you do yeah. and as all of our guests do but to have the statistics have the knowledge yeah. have the history I, I think it's a good lesson for everybody disability or not if you're going to call out sometimes it's better to call in or do your research yeah because you, you wouldn't want to get in an argument with him because yeah. he'd be like 1976 there was 4,000 people on this petition and you'd be like But if you just yell about disability or race or religion for the sake of yelling about it, people get tired of it. But if you say, look, this is not right because of bang, 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 your jaw drops. You're like, oh. So I think it's a great lesson. If you want to advocate, arm yourself with some good tools to know that you can because he's a perfect example and he's had cut through in the industry because of it, which is pretty awesome. Listenable podcast at Outlook.com. That is our email. Send through all your nominations with as much information as you can so we can learn a bit more and hopefully have some of the guests that you want to hear on upcoming episodes of the podcast. 100% stealing those stats he was really off to. Are you going to give him the credit? 100%. Legally, I have to. <laughs> all right? I will do- if it wasn't legally. <laughs> no, I will, Professor. I promise. We'll see you on the next episode.
Listen Able was presented by Dylan Alcott and Angus O'Loughlin and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production by Darcy Thompson and the music was written and performed by Eliza Hull. 